0: Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. And today, the theme is downtown Boise. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. The Downtown Boise Association commissioned Story Story Night to find people with stories about our city to be presented at their annual State of Downtown event. We gathered along the banks of the Boise River for an afternoon in the City of Trees with stories from Alessandro Marigalia, Mayor of Boise, Laura McLean, Lance Davison, and Rocky Johnson. We are downtown, and it's story time. Our first storyteller today, actually, maybe after a book deal, uh, I don't know, maybe he's not now. Uh, You know, one of the things I appreciate is I ask a lot when I interview storytellers, I ask a lot of questions and ask a lot of sharing from them. This is the first time I've been interviewed a storyteller where they've asked a lot from me, uh, where they were saying, like, you know, I would really appreciate it if maybe you could bring me a lot of your posters from Story Story Night, if there's any documentation. Uh, So that was a new one, and you'll understand why in just a moment. And the other thing, just saying his name is going to class this event up. Please welcome to our mic, Alessandro Maragaglia.
1: So this is a story about searching for hidden treasure, but instead of searching for gold or silver or jewels It's about searching for hidden pieces of paper and for a better understanding of Boise So I'm an archivist and librarian. In fact, I work in that building up and over the amphitheater I work for Boise State's Albertsons Library. I'm a professional researcher I help people find the information that they're looking for, but I'm also a historian and I'm able to do research on my own I moved to Idaho uh, in 2016 from the Midwest. I got a great job offer from Boise State and wanted to see what it was like living in Idaho. And as soon as I moved here, I had an interest in learning more about my new home. And on my first day of work, I first heard the name Vardis Fisher in reference to some of our archival collections. Vardis Fisher. What kind of a name is Vardis? I had no idea. But over the ensuing months, I heard more about this man named Vardis. And it turns out he's a largely forgotten figure in Idaho's history. He was a novelist and writer. He was super prolific. He wrote over 30, 35 novels. Probably his most popular or best-known novel is Mountain Man, which was later made into the movie Jeremiah Johnson, starring Robert Redford. In the course of my research, I watched the movie. And it's a surprisingly fun film, uh, shot entirely outside in Sundance, Utah. And the premiere for Jeremiah Johnson actually took place in Boise at the Egyptian theater in 1972. Robert Redford and the director, Sidney Pollack, came to town, and it was quite a big deal. In fact, for only $25, you could get a ticket to meet both of them. And so Vartus Fisher, I also learned, is an Idahoan himself. He's from eastern Idaho, grew up born and raised there, and then he lived most of his adult life in Hagerman. And when Fisher was a relatively young man, he was appointed to be director of the Federal Writers Project in Idaho. All right, The Federal Writers Project is uh, part of FDR's New Deal program. So the stock market crash in 1929, the Great Depression that followed, right, and President Roosevelt's idea to put people back to work was to create federal agencies and bureaus. And the Federal Writers Project, or the FWP, was one of those agencies. And it was designed to what? Put writers back to work. So Fisher's appointed the Federal Writers Project, and the first task he's given from the National Office is to write a guidebook to the entire state of Idaho. And the National Office expects this to take multiple years, at least two, maybe three. But Fisher gets to work right away and completes this guidebook in less than a year. He works almost single-handedly, by himself, traveling the state, writing about the history's natural resources, its exports, famous people, points of interest, things like that. And he completes the guidebook, and it's ready to be published. And he tells that to the national office. But the national office freaks out that Idaho is ready to publish their guidebook, because the national office wanted the Washington DC guidebook to set the stage and be the gold standard for these guidebooks. And so the national office sent out the assistant director by train to Idaho to try to get Fisher to stop publishing this guidebook. As Fisher tells the story, the assistant director comes out. Fisher meets with him, gets him drunk, sends him back on the train, and goes ahead and publishes the guidebook without any concern for the national office. And so the Idaho guidebook is, in fact, the first guidebook of any of the states published as part of the Federal Writers Project. this got a lot of national attention. It was really well-reviewed nationally, and got a lot of interest in Idaho and in Fisher. And this positive press allowed Fisher to keep his job, though it did earn him the nickname the bad boy of the project. All right, all this was in 1937. Let's jump ahead 80 years to 2017. All right, I'm a recent transplant to Idaho. I'm a historian. I'm an archivist. And I just hear this story about Vardis Fisher publishing this statewide guidebook. I wanted to learn more. So I started reading history books about the FWP. And in one of these history books, there's a footnote, a really tantalizing footnote. And for researchers, at least, footnotes are often more exciting than the text themselves. They're like little breadcrumbs that might lead to other discoveries. So in this footnote, there's a quotation from Vardis Fisher describing these books he wrote for the Federal Writers Project in the 30s, but that had never been published that had never seen right, the light of day. So I'm really intrigued. Unpublished manuscripts from a famous Idaho novelist? I wanted to find out more. So I tracked down that interview, and it turns out there was a recording available in an archive in New York. So I contact the archivists out there, they send me a digitized copy, I sit down at my computer and listen to it. And it's really hard to hear. It was on a reel-to-reel tape, it was made in the 1960s, they keep turning it on and off, and their glasses clinking in the background, so it's clear that Fisher and the interviewer are talking over drinks late at night. But in amongst all that noise, I hear Fisher describe a guidebook he wrote similar to the statewide one, but focused solely on the city of Boise. Well, that really piqued my interest. A guidebook only to Boise that had never been published? Did it still exist? I wanted to know, and if so, where is it? So I turned to a tool that any good researcher uses when they want to dig deep, Google. And I found out that the Federal Writers Project records are located at the Library of Congress in Washington, DC. So I'm scrolling through this 300-page inventory, hoping that there's some mention of this guidebook. And there's one mention in box A562. and It just reads Idaho comma Boise. Well, then I knew I had to visit in person. So I fly to Washington, DC. I get off the plane, get into an Uber, and go straight to the Library of Congress. I don't stop anywhere. I have my roller bag in tow. I go into the Library of Congress, register as a reader, present my ID, fill out forms, go into the manuscript reading room, which is a mundane sort of room with low ceilings, fluorescent lights, desks lined up everywhere and guarded by armed security. Go up to the main desk, explain to the archivist there what I'm looking for, ask to see box A562. They go into the back to pull it. And I wait anxiously at my desk. They finally bring out the box, set it down. I open it up. I pull out the folder labeled Boise, Idaho. And inside was the complete guide to Boise that Vardis Fisher wrote 80 years earlier. It was exactly what I wanted it to be. It Really, the thrill was, was indescribable. I'm in this office building windowless, and it's and it's, there are pieces of paper that just are, It's it was incredible. And I'm there by myself, uh, so I had to stay contained, sadly. So I quickly make scans of this manuscript, go check into my hotel, and then I read it. And after I'm done reading it, I call my wife and tell her, it's time to publish Vardis Fisher's Boise. Because what I found was an amazing encapsulation of what Boise was like at this particular moment in time, in the post-Depression era in the late 1930s. Fisher describes the architecture, the layout of the city, famous people, points of interest and really clearly likes the city of Boise. But it's also, more importantly, really written in Fisher's style. So he uses his acerbic wit, even some sarcasm. And Fisher isn't always positively uh, look. He doesn't always positively look at the city of Boise. So there's some criticism there. But most importantly, the style is unfiltered. And so here's one example of Fisher's unfiltered style. He writes, Like cities everywhere, Boise suffers from want of congruity and planning structures, and so presents the appearance of having grown up in a burst of individualism, with no regard in any building for those around it. There is also, of course, the problem of changing tastes, from which all cities suffer so much in ugliness. The Idenhaw Hotel, some 30 years ago, was the edifice at which Boise pointed with greatest pride. But nobody finds it beautiful today. It's clear that right Fisher wouldn't be hired by the Downtown Boise Association to promote the city, I don't think. So I've discovered this manuscript, and I know that it needs to be published. But I have to fill in the gaps. Why wasn't it published at the time? So I do more digging, more research, read correspondence, get archives from the National Archives to read through, and I piece together this untold story of why it didn't get published. And Fisher failed to get it published not for lack of trying. It was that nobody wanted to touch the manuscript. So he writes to his bosses back in DC and explains the problems that he's having. So I'll read some more from those letters. Here's how Fisher explains it. The Chamber of Commerce and City Council are made up of fine Republican gents for whom everything WPA stinks to the high heavens. The State Library Board is composed of old reactionaries who would not even listen to the proposal much less accept it. And in yet another letter, again, I'm quoting here, Fisher wrote, the mayor and the city council of Boise refused to sponsor the volume I take it because they are all Republicans. Times have changed. So clearly, I'm a historically minded person. For me, the state of downtown involves thinking historically. Boise of today can't be separated from Boise of yesterday. When I'm walking around downtown, on the Greenbelt, in our neighborhoods, I'm constantly wondering about how the place came to be the way that it is. How old is this building? What was there before it? Who are the people that made this space the way that it looks today? And reading Boise's, uh, Vardis Fisher's Boise Guide answered some of those questions. Uh, one small example is the Art Deco office building that's on Main Street between 3rd and 4th Streets. It has salmon coloring with some beige as well, and it's kitty corner to the northeast of blue sky bagels. Well, thanks to Vardis Fisher, I learned that that building was originally built as a Mormon chapel, and now it's an office building. And I'd driven by there dozens of times and had no idea about that building's history. So that was really revealing. And reading Vardis Fisher's Boise Guide also reminded me that although Boise is newly popular today, it's not a new city. It has a rich history. And population growth in Boise isn't new either. In fact, in Fisher's telling in the, not in, the, in the guide, he talks about how the population has doubled over the preceding 30 years to a whopping 25,000 in the late 1930s. And I'm reminded that history often repeats itself. In the Boise guide, Fisher discusses at length the history of the education system in Boise, the history of the Boise schools. And he described an uproar in the early 1900s over the construction of a new Boise High School building. And here's how Fisher tells that story. In an attempt to get a fancy design from the East, the school board scorned local architects and got a building for their pains that almost precipitated a war. So the city back then, 120 years ago, went with an East Coast design firm that cost a lot of money to build a new building to the consternation of Boise residents. Sound familiar? So I pushed forward with getting the guidebook published and I looked to find a publisher. And I experienced some of the same issues that Fisher experienced back in the 30s. But I ultimately found a great partner in Rediscovered Books right in downtown Boise. And the team there, yes. They have a great team there. And uh, the layout looks amazing. And I tracked down historic photographs from local uh, collectors and archives to illustrate Fisher's words and to illustrate and show what Boise looked like 80 years ago. And so, 80 years after Fisher first wrote the manuscript and after sitting for decades in a dusty box in the Library of Congress, Vardis Fisher's Boise was finally published in January 2020, much to my excitement. And Fisher, it turns out, only lived in Boise for four years, the four years that he worked for the Federal Writers Project. And then he left town as quickly as possible, actually, for Hagerman, and never really came back. And I've lived in Boise for just over four years. And most of those years I've spent working on getting Fisher's Boise Guide published. But unlike Fisher, I have no plans to leave Boise. I really like Boise, and I know that there's just so much more to uncover related to Boise's history. Thank you very much.
0: All right, you heard some of Vardis's voice in the writings that Alex read to you, but we actually have the clip from the University of Rochester in New York that was part of his that launched this whole trip to DC to the dusty bins, and so we're just going to play this clip. You'll hear Vardis's voice and the interviewer talking about the Boise Guide.
2: I don't remember. We have two big fat
3: manuscripts ready. I suppose they back in the National Archives and a Guide to Boise. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, there is a Guide to Boise. I had a Guide to Boise, really. And those are still in manuscript somewhere, I guess, or they're lost. Oh, but I'd had enough of it. Yeah. I couldn't see if there's anything more that I could do. Yeah. But you had uh, these manuscripts that were ready to be published. The Boise Guide, you say, was one of them? It seems to me there was a small book seemed to me we had a Boise guide ready. I know they're two big, fat books, but I'll be damned if I can remember what we did.
0: <laughs> the thing I love about that is you can see him thinking, like n- tapping his knuckles on the, on the desk and thinking, what did we do? What would we do? Well, here it is. This is what Alex was able to accomplish with the rediscovered books, Vardis Fisher's Boise. And uh, in the introduction, he says that it is hoped that it will bring to Boiseans a better knowledge of their city. It would be really interesting to know how he would feel that he was actually not writing about the Boiseans of his generation, but he was writing about us today and how we're learning more about Boise from this manuscript. So in addition to this book coming into the world in January of 2020, uh, Our current mayor also came into her office in January 2020, which I'm only guessing must be every public servant's dream to come into office right at that time. So to share some about maybe some observations that Vardis would... I don't know if she would have published this book or not, if she was the mayor during Vardis' time and got this manuscript across her desk. But she's going to share some insights that maybe Vardis would have noticed too. Please welcome to our stage Mayor Lauren McLean.
2: Thank you. So um, a couple things. Storytelling totally intimidates me. And when I got here today and heard that I was a storyteller, I started sweating bullets. (laughs) Because I thought I was here to talk about Cherie Buckner-Webb Park. (laughs) Um, And I have always loved Story, Story Night, and people have said, oh, you should go tell a story. I'm like, hell no, there's nothing scarier than, look, I'm shaking than telling a story in front of people. Um, I'm really shaking. This is ridiculous. So I I tell my assistant that that she should do something that scares her every day, so I guess this is my thing today. Um, So I'm going to tell you a story, first off, about a mayor who shows up at an event, I guess I already told you this story, and finds out she's supposed to tell a story, and she doesn't like stories, and she has a 405 hard stop because she's got to go present an issue to city council and tee it off. And right now, they're talking about animal codes, so I really have to hurry. Um, I thought, Alessandro, it was so appropriate, actually, that you just covered what you covered, because it was a great prelude for the State of the City Address I'm going to give later this week. Because storytelling is incredibly important. And while I don't like to tell mine or be on the spot like this, this is ridiculous. Talked to the president yesterday. I was fine, and I'm a mess right now. Um, the, telling of stories to remind us where we came from, what we've been through, who we are, and who we can, should, and ought to be is one of the most important things that we can offer each other, offer our community, offer our kids, and ultimately offer those people like Alessandro that are 100 years later trying to find the answers. And in the last six weeks, I found, and maybe this is why we're telling stories today, that we need to tell our stories so badly because of what we have all been through collectively for the last two years. People ask me what it's like to be a mayor in a pandemic, and I have images in my head of gray days, people calling saying you've got to make this decision now, other leaders saying I'm being emotional, not looking at science parents asking what to do with their kids, people asking how to figure out what they ought to be doing at work, all of that in a really condensed 48-hour time period. When my daughter was overseas, the border was closing, we had to call her and tell her she had to come home. And the thing is, is that this isn't new. We did this 100 years ago. We suffered the Spanish flu at a time of intense growth at a time when nationally we are arguing about the role of women and whether or not someone like me and my daughter should be allowed to vote. Boiseans and Idahoans led at that time, and Boiseans have led throughout the last two years in the same way. And one thing I learned in reading, I didn't read Vardis's book, and now I really want to, Um, in reading piece after piece, looking through archives, looking for stories of the mayor from 100 years ago of residents from 100 years ago is we don't have enough. And it's incredibly important to know those stories so that next time we do this, and it'll, we'll be doing it again in fewer than 100 years. People have a, can, one, find solace in the fact that we did it. We fought like hell, we argued, we got through it. The people and the community that we were and will remain that throughout all of this. And so I'm gonna wrap with the pink tree because I have a minute and a half because I think this is perfect. You know, back in the innocent days of those four weeks that I had when I didn't have furniture and I hadn't yet closed City Hall down and I was a new mayor and I was really excited about everything, which I still am. I'm really optimistic for our city. Um, I had to go to my first CCDC meeting and on the agenda that day was a vote for this pink tree. And I'd watched the process throughout and Matthew Mazzota had said, had proposed some pioneer-like things to begin with. And in my heart of hearts, I thought, you know, this isn't who we are. We had those days, and a little bit, but not like other towns of the West. We are Boise, and we are a place that where people came together, scratched out a living, had big dreams of a city in a desert wilderness. And in this city, there has always been an energy an optimism, a creativity and innovation that's different than we've seen in other places. And so in my mind, I thought, oh, Matthew, Matthew, get away from the pioneer stuff. Like, let's do something different. So when I saw the pink tree, I was really excited. And then a debate ensued. And somebody could just write. In an attempt to get a fancy design from the East, the Urban Renewal Board, well I actually I should say, members of the Urban Renewal Board and the public scorned local, ar- or no, the Urban Renewal Board scorned scorn, scorn local archi- architects and got a building for their pains that almost precipitated a war. Now people were saying that was gonna happen with this pink tree. People were saying, you need to go with a local architect and we are gonna announce this week that we're gonna do something really cool about stories. We're gonna involve a local architect, I'm so excited. But in this very vote, I had to look at the art, look at the park and the place we were trying to envision, read what Boisians had said about who we are, know in my gut where I believe we're headed. And I recognized that, yes, I was going to vote for this out-of-state ar- artist who was going to bring us a pink tree. And I got to tell you, I love Boise High. It's beautiful. I love the art that is in our collection, that is in every wall of my office by local artists. And I love the addition of art and work and vision of people from other places, because so many of us are from other places, although now we are from here. And so when I see that pink tree, and I stood on a stage and looked at all the people there and hoped to God it wasn't a super spreader event, I was so excited by the reaction that people had to that tree. The day before I'd gone, I sat on the, ch- uh, the swing with my chief of staff to go through a couple things, and countlessly, people were showing up, getting out of their car, not seeing that I was sitting there, walking up to the tree, taking a picture, and then jumping on a swing. And that has continued in the morning, in the afternoon, and late into the evening when one of my favorite things to do is to bike by and see that thing lit. So there is a place for everyone, for all art, for challenging vision, for arguments that we will continue to have over all these things, and then a very, very important place for the stories that tell everybody how we got through it, stayed who we are, and set the stage for what was next. Thank you all very much.
0: Thank you, Mayor McLean. I'm going to read you another, another quote from Vardis Fisher, which leads into our, our next storyteller. <clears throat> Upon any of several streets can be found enough incongruous architectural ineptness to abash any lover of the beautiful. If it were not for the trees, and it is the trees after all, which give to Boise its somewhat legendary distinction of being one of the loveliest cities in the nation, without them, the city would not inappropriately invite the metaphor of a peacock divested of its feathers. Our next storyteller is also not a fan of naked peacocks. Please welcome Lance Davison.
3: Thank you, Jody. So I'm uh, similar to the mayor in that I don't love talking about myself, but in this opportunity to talk about the City of Trees, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story about me, who I am, why I do what I do, and we'll get to what I've learned about downtown in my 10 years living here in Boise, almost 11 years now. So I'm first and foremost a father. I have a 17-years-old tomorrow daughter named McKenna and a four-year-old son named Cody and a father, and throughout my career, I've learned to be a collaborator, a listener, an observer of nature and people, and so that is the frame with which I look through downtown Boise and the city of Boise. I think back to my childhood, and first, when I first moved to Boise 11 years ago, I went downtown I love the North End, which is where we live now. Beautiful, large, majestic trees, a lot of history. And downtown was a lot of fun, but I felt like there was something missing, and I wasn't sure what that really was. And so now I take a step back to how I grew up as a child in the apple capital of the world, Wenatchee, Washington. Not quite a city of trees, but uh, we were surrounded by apple trees and orchards. And some of my favorite memories are of laying in the grass underneath the large birch tree of our family home with my family dog, Nick, and uh, just enjoying the life that that tree brought to my family and that connection with nature. And that kind of grew throughout my childhood, playing in the orchards, uh, adventuring, building forts in the grass, climbing on the trees, coming home sick from apples, not able to eat mom's nice meal. And I just realized how important that was to me as I grew up, that connection to nature, living in a small town. And so when I look at raising my children and where my life eventually ended up in a city, I kind of worry about what their future looks like when they're not that blessed to live in a small town and be connected to nature. So as I continued to grow up, I eventually became a wildland firefighter, a forester, A land manager. I moved out of Wenatchee, went off to college, eventually got married, and I was working as a wildland firefighter and land manager, and really enjoying my hometown again, moved back home, and my wife got accepted to medical school, so quickly I was uprooted from my roots and the dream job that I had figured out uh, with the state of Washington, and we moved to Seattle, so talk about being uprooted from what felt good to you. But when I was in Seattle, I started to learn a little bit about cities, um, how important they are to people. Uh, It was a struggle. It was really hard to be in a concrete jungle disconnected from nature. Uh, But I spent several years working in the city. We had our daughter, McKenna, and uh, I progressed to working in the forest a little bit. And then we moved to New Mexico, where uh, I was introduced to urban forestry, which seems weird, right? I never wanted to be around other people. I wanted to work in the woods. Uh, But turns out, I had a knack for it. I really enjoyed working with people. And so I have this curiosity of that connection between nature and people. So that brings me to eventually moving to Boise, once my wife finished her training, and I started my company, the Keystone Concept. And our first charter was to work with the state of Idaho Department of Lands to come up with a canopy assessment for all of the Treasure Valley, nine different cities, Boise included, to look at what benefits our trees provide for air quality, water quality. I don't know if you're aware, region-wide we have about 10% tree canopy. Here in Boise we have about 16%. That's relatively low, but it's not bad. Uh, But it brings us millions of dollars of benefits when it comes to human health and air quality and water quality. So we were doing all this work, collaborating with everybody from Idaho Power to all the cities um, and Idaho Department of Lands. And then we, about the same time we finished that work, the idea of what eventually became the Treasure Valley Canopy Network, where I'm the director and president of now, and a group that brought together and raised awareness about trees. And about that same time, mayor and council came to the then city forester of the time and said, we really want to build downtown like a park. We want to have large vibrant trees, how do we do that? And come to find out a big part of city council's awareness was from the work that we were doing. And so we sat back and watched and uh, city council and CCDC, a lot of our friends are in the crowd today, um, decided they weren't gonna invest in this suspended pavement technology that invests a lot of money underground to grow large tree canopy. And it was at that point I realized how exciting this was, that the one thing that I realized was missing was a vibrant tree canopy. There are trees downtown, but after about five years, they start to struggle, but the city here was interested in investing in these trees. And so my background of wanting to bring in nature into downtown and bring nature into where we live and play was starting to be realized. And so uh, CCDC and the city charted forward, did a project on Sixth Street, and we learned a lot. Kept some of the businesses closed longer than we had hoped. A lot of struggles with that first contract. So then we were really worried, right? We have come all this way, we educated folks, but this kind of flopped a little bit. But we were able to bring everybody together and continue to have that conversation and recognize that this is a benefit. And now we employ local companies that design these streetscapes, um, we employ landscape companies, and what you see downtown as you start to walk around, recognize that the trees are living much longer, they're large and vibrant, they're reducing urban heat, which, whew, feel that today. I'm glad you guys are under the shade of a tree over there. Um, and it's really fascinating to see that we're, we're growing a vibrant downtown, an interconnected downtown. The mayor talked about Cherie Buckner-Webb Park, a perfect example of using this kind of technology, investing in that infrastructure that includes art and green space and it's really fascinating to see and so I reflect back on what I really want for my children and what I was worried about and I realized that I don't think I really need to worry anymore. They see where we live in the north end, they see the sparrowhawk chasing the sparrows and they recognize that. They love the fact that they can recreate in downtown when it's 104 degrees or in the north end when it's 104 degrees. And it's, it's fun to me that they recognize that even when they're living and growing up in a city. And so the other piece that I want you to look at when you go downtown is what we're building as part of a statewide urban wood network, which is taking our large trees in the north end that must come down. Some of them are old and decayed and This brings me to my son who we watched the city have to take down a large silver maple, what we called the swing tree in the north end two years ago. Well, that swing tree now has been slabbed and resides in several homes in the Treasure Valley, even as far as businesses in McCall are using parts of that swing tree. If you go to Kin, they have some urban wood products from our network of partners. You look at Wild Roots, the new Mother Earth Brewing, our friends right over here at Lost Grove Brewing, And so what you're starting to see is not only a thriving, living network of trees and green space in our city of trees, but also us using all those materials to create beautiful furniture and continue that story of the trees that we must lose. And so when I look at all that Jen has talked about, the mayor talked about, Alessandro talked about, is this is an amazing community when we talk about coming together. I look at what happened in 2020 brought a lot of amazing things and showed how vibrant we are and how innovative we are and it really in the end gives me hope not only for my kids and their future living and growing up in the city of trees but also for all of you so i'm grateful to be a small part of that thank you
0: our next so you heard from lance talking about the life under the street, which is a life we don't think about very often when you're treading down broad and the fact that there's life happening below you. Our next featured storyteller is probably known for being the lead of the life in the streets, above the street. You can see her almost every weekend at Hump and Hannah's in the Rocky Johnson Band. Please welcome Rocky Johnson.
4: As you know we uh, have a fine establishment in downtown Boise called Humpin' Hannas. Humpin' Hannas opened our doors uh, in October of 1978, so next month we will be celebrating our 43rd anniversary. Some of you might not know that my husband laid every brick in the place, so all the brick arches, all the architecture you see is his beautiful handiwork. And we're a truly family-owned business and we're proud to have been there for, for that long. We're like this giant meetup up place in downtown Boise. So in case you've been looking at those fans that you're waving in the breeze, the, uh, we have a plaque that actually proves that we're the giant meetup place of downtown Boise because we were voted the number one meat market in the Treasure Valley in the Idaho Statesman's Best of Boise. Just ahead of Albertsons and Costco. Editor's note, apparently some people didn't understand the category. But did they or did they not? Hmm. (laughs) You know, truly, people meet there, they have fun, they fall in love, they get married, they have kids, they bring those kids in for their 21st birthdays, and then those kids bring their kids in for their 21st birthdays. I mean, it's a real legacy, and we're really proud to be a a big part of uh, people's lives in downtown Boise. And uh, you know, people come up to me all the time and tell me stories, la- and a uh, proof of the fact that we are like this giant meetup place. Uh, like last month, even I was at the bank, and the bank teller told me, "You know what? I'm I'm alive because of you." And I said, "Well, thank you." I kind of hear that because we've been around a minute or two. I hear that once in a while. He said, "Well, our story is a little bit unique. My parents met on your dance floor, and." Uh, it's because it was a bar. My mother thought, I don't know this dude, so I'm going to tell him a fake name. My name is Rachel. And uh, he says, th- this guy, this bank teller says to me, you know what? My oldest sister's name is Rachel. And so on behalf of myself and my family, thank you very much for you and your place. So there you have it. That's a story right there. And then even this last weekend when I was at Boise Pride helping a co-host the main stage, I was backstage and this young lady says to me, Rocky Johnson, I've always wanted to meet you. My name is Hannah. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And she said, I, uh, I have to tell you, I'm alive because of you. And I said, well, that's cool. And she said, well, my story's a little unique. Uh, my parents were in the bathroom at your establishment while you were singing and, and a little procreation happened. And nine months later, I was born. And so they named me Hannah. And they did not tell me this until I was 18 years old. Because you know, it's that kind of story. So I couldn't wait till I turned 21 to come into your establishment. And I've been there constantly. I love your place. I love you. And uh, I'm just really glad to be named Hannah. And after all, she said, I think that I should be the real life Hump and Hannah under the circumstances. I always say, you know, they don't call us Hump and Hannahs for nothing, but I kind of got to quit saying that, I think. The double entendre is taken seriously sometimes. And Chief, just so you know, we don't allow that kind of thing to happen in our restroom uh, on a normal basis if we know about it. (laughs) But we're glad Hannah's alive, right? Right? (laughs) Right? Anyway, um, to clarify a, a little further, Hump and Hannah. In case you haven't seen our logo, Hump and Hannah is a fictional character, and she has a server tray, and she's humping drinks to the tables. So that's where that comes from. In case you know the double entendre is still really sticking out there. So Hump and Hannah humping drinks to the tables, and you know people ask me how I get the energy to do what I do all the time, night after night, week after week year after year. And honestly, the truth is, it's because of stories like that. And it's because of people like you, who come to our fine establishment and meet up with each other and, and, uh, and share life's experiences together. And it's, uh, it's really pretty, pretty incredible. We try to create a home for people that so that they're comfortable people from 21 to 81 are comfortable. Of course, some of the 81-year-olds might not be happy when that loud chick singer gets up on stage and starts making racket, but it's true that I've really had some uh, 80-year-old people up on stage to celebrate their birthdays, so there's that. Anyway, uh, I, I, as I mentioned, I just really w- appreciate um, our community so much. I try to give back as much as we can. We host fundraisers and charitable events and do what we can for our community because we've got to give back to those people who who give to us. Um, And when my husband was in the hospital with COVID last year, it came back to us just a hundredfold. The incredible love and support we felt from our community when we were going through all of that was just uh, mind-blowing. And uh, also throughout the whole pandemic, the support we've received from fabulous organizations like the Downtown Boise Association and and everyone else involved with downtown has just been incredible. And so, so that love and support comes back, and uh, the meeting of minds comes back, and and uh, the shared experiences of our downtown is incredible. You know, so there might be some of us in. in Alessandro, you might be a history buff, know about this, but you know, in the '70s and '80s, there was this big urban renewal thing that went on, and there was all these historical buildings that were torn down. And those of you who remember, like I do, that downtown was really a mess. There were big holes in the ground, and there was construction everywhere, and there were empty lots, and we were all kind of like, what's going to happen with our downtown? This looks very unseemly. And uh, so Boise started this campaign called the I Dig Boise campaign, and uh, complete with this logo of a construction worker with a shovel and a hammer and his I dig Boise. And he had this goofy grin on his face, and... uh, and so downtown Boise did a sister campaign along with that. Like, I dig downtown Boise with the same goofy construction worker, you know, goofy grin and all of that. But you know what? Sometimes those campaigns kind of work because it worked on me. Um, I dug downtown Boise. I, I dig it today. It's my home. So, I'm. you know, you guys are melting, and I think everybody wants some water and some, some uh, uh Libations, not just water, but maybe some food and that kind of thing. So, I'm just going to tag this little story with uh, the tagline that I use in our commercials, uh, and maybe for a year or two. So, come on down to my place. Meet up. Meet up at Huff and Hannah's, 621 Main in downtown Boise, where nobody's Johnson rocks harder.
0: I'm not sure I should share this, but the first time I met Rocky, uh, I actually met her in a bathroom. (laughs) Nothing's happened yet. (laughs) Uh, We actually, uh, so Rocky, we're both singers, and uh, we actually toyed with the idea of doing a song here today uh, that was performed by Bing Crosby and Judy Garland uh, that features Boise, which I'd never heard of, but like many things from decades ago, it's no longer really culturally appropriate, we decided. Um, kind of like some of the Disney films with the disclaimer, there's a lyric in there that Bing sings that's, the girls are noisy when they come from Boise. And I think we all can see how that's offensive, uh, because noisy does not rhyme with Boise, right? So we, c- we, couldn't, we couldn't do it today. We couldn't do it today. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Wherever you download your podcast